This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Before we hear uh, the sermon from Pastor Andrew today, may I invite um, Sister Ruth to read for us the scriptures, uh, the second segment of scripture for today. This is taken from Esther chapter 6, verse uh, 1 to chapter 8, verse 2. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Chapter 7 So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. 
King Xerxes, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Habona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This is the word of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we pray this day that as we listen to your word in Esther, that you will teach us who you are and why we need to be confident even when things seem out of control. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When my father's father lived in Ipoh, in Malaysia, okay, that's where they're having elections today, right? yesterday. He owned a bicycle and a spare parts repair shop. And so during the war, a Japanese soldier came to my grandfather in Ipoh and asked him to repair his bicycle. So my grandfather repaired his bicycle, the Japanese soldier went on his way. For several hours, the Japanese soldier returned, and he was unhappy with his repairs. He accused my grandfather of being a Chinese spy and bashed him up with the butt of his rifle. Now living in those times was a time of fear, right? you, a time of fear because you never know when you're going to get beaten up for no reason. You never know where you might be sent to your death and to an unmarked grave. There's a mood of fear. This mood of fear permeates through the book of Esther, especially as we come from chapter 4 to chapter 5. We know that the Mordecai and the Jews, all the Jews living in the Persian Empire, are now under a death sentence. The die has been cast, the dice, the purr, has been rolled, and the date has been set, the 13th day of the 12th month of Ada, all the Jews will be destroyed, killed, annihilated, and all their goods will be plundered. Now last week, we learned that Queen Esther the Jew was going to go before the king, King Xerxes, to beg for the life of all the Jews. But she'll most likely die for it, right? As we read in the last part of the chapter, any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, there is but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. So what's the law? What normally happens? If you go into the king's presence without permission, you die. On the rare, rare, rare occasion, the king will show you mercy and grace and you live. 
So do you know who this is? Okay, this is none other than King Xerxes in history, right? This is a stone relief of him. And what do we see? We see in his hands a scepter. We can't tell whether it's gold color because they don't have color in stone reliefs. We presume it's gold. But we know also in archaeology that King Xerxes was surrounded by these guards carrying axes. So what's going to happen to Queen Esther when she goes before the king? Will she get the scepter of grace or will she get an axe to the head? Thankfully, as we've read today, Queen Esther goes into the court and the king holds out the scepter to her. So she's allowed to approach the king. And not only is the king in a favorable mood of mind, he's very generous, right? He says, what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. What would you do if you were in Queen Esther's shoes? I don't know about you, but I would be like, okay, king, this is what I want to ask. This is my petition. This is my request, right? I, I want to I ask for grace for all the Jews living in your kingdom. But strangely, that's not what Queen Esther does, right? Instead, Queen Esther's request is, if it pleases the king, let the king together of Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. You all find that a bit strange? That's a bit strange, right, to me. But not only is that strange, it seems even stranger because after she invites king and Haman to the dinner, at that dinner, again, the king says, what is your request? What is your petition? And again, Queen Esther says, King and Amman, come for a banquet tomorrow. Now, is Queen Esther getting cold feet? Is she just procrastinating? It seems like the situation is kind of a bit out of control. But we shouldn't worry because God has things under control. We already noted that uh, the structure of the book of Esther is structured around the banquets, right? There are lots of banquets in the book of Esther. And they are kind of like mirrored images. So in chapter 1, if you remember, Queen Xerxes had a banquet for the empire. And then there was a second banquet for Susa, the citadel. And this is mirrored by this banquet for Purim, for the empire, and the second banquet for Purim, for Susa, in the last chapter. We see there was a coronation banquet for Esther, and there's a promotion banquet for Mordecai. And so where we are at today is right in the very heart or the middle of the book of Esther. We come to the beginning of the center, right, where there's the first dinner for the king and Haman and the second dinner for the king and Haman. And this heart or the center of the book of Esther is where we really see God at work. This is where we see God's hand at work. He's the hand that's controlling everything. So as a result of these two dinner invitations, we don't know if God really, sorry, if, if Esther intended for this to happen, but Haman went out that day really happy and in high spirits. Like he was like over the moon, right? He was already pretty egotistical and proud person. You know, he had lots of vast wealth, many sons. He was honored and elevated above all the other officials and kings. But this invitation to the two banquets really put him over the moon, right? I'm the only person Queen Esther has invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. And so you can sort of think of it. This is a picture of Haman's 
ego lah, to begin with, you know. And it kind of like grows into this self-importance, arrogance and hubris. But actually these twin invitations pumps up his ego from the size of a big balloon. Like, you know those big Swiss exercise balls, right? Okay, so that's like the size of Haman's ego, right? He couldn't come through the door today for service because his ego is just too big. Now, because his ego is so big and God is using his ego, his rage towards Mordecai parallels the, 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 the inflation of his ego. And so, for a very proud person to be disrespected, your ego is very hurt, and so you get very triggered, right? You know the word triggered. So I know of this very, very rich man. He's the richest man I know of all of you. Nothing, you're all nothing compared to him. So he's telling me one day, you know, he was very angry. I said, why are you so angry? He's telling me how he went to visit a friend in a condominium. Don't know whether he's driving his Rolls Royce or not. So he went there. And I said, then what happened? The security guard asked me to move my car forward to get my visitor details. I'm like, so? So what? That's 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 what everybody does, right? You move the car, the security asks you. I refused, he said. I insisted the security guard come to me to get my details. But he still got really upset. He was triggered, right? Because he took this as a slight, as disrespect to who he was. And so that's the case for Haman, right? He's already very upset with Mordecai before, but now with his ego, like this Swiss ball size, the fact that Mordecai, even though... You know, I've been invited to the, this, the queen and the king's personal banquet and you still don't want to stand up for me. He, he's really upset, really upset. And so, his wife and his friends give him some advice. And we've seen that in the book of Esther, there's a pattern of people giving bad advice. Now. And so that pattern continues. His wife, Zeresh, and his wife said, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. So what's happened here is Haman's ego is so big that he can no longer wait 11 months for Mordecai the Jew to be executed. Has to be tomorrow. Has to be tomorrow morning. Has to be publicly seen by everybody. So he organizes this huge pole. So 50 cubits is like taller than this ceiling, right? This ceiling is pretty tall. This pole is beyond this ceiling. It's like three stories high, okay? That's how high this pole is. And he wants to put Haman, uh, Haman wants to put Mordecai impaled on it, okay? Like, driven through it. So basically, this pole is a symbol or a... uh, His ego demands a very, very public execution for Mordecai. Right? It's like, you know, this is what happens when you don't respect me. This is what happens when you mess with me. That's what... That's what Haman is probably thinking. So, Haman goes to sleep delighted. He goes to sleep delighted. He's dreaming of Mordecai on a pole. Now, the next chapter should read, Haman then woke up, went to meet the King Xerxes. And King Xerxes approved of his plan. And Mordecai the Jew was impaled on this tall pole dead by lunchtime the next day. That's what should have happened, right? 99 times out of 100 or 
9,999 out of 10,000 times. But Haman didn't factor God at work. Well, Haman is having this delightful sleep and dreaming his delightful dreams of Mordecai and Nepal. God is at work. And so that very night where Haman is having his delightful sleep, the king could not sleep. First coincidence. He orders the book of Chronicles to be read to him. He, he, he didn't, you know, he had it with his glass of holics. Read the book of Chronicles, and just so happened, the reader turned to the page where Mordecai had exposed Bigtana and Teresh, who wanted to assassinate King Xerxes in chapter 1. And again, the last coincidence was that honor and recognition was not given to Mordecai for saving the king's life. So in these three verses, there are four very unlikely coincidences. Right? King could not sleep. Once this book read to him, finds the very page where Mordecai saves him from assassination, realizes that he's indebted to Mordecai, but he didn't honor and give recognition to Mordecai. So on that very night, where Haman is thinking and planning of killing Mordecai, he's viewing Mordecai in the worst and most unfavorable light. The king, the most important and most powerful person in the country, in the kingdom, realizes that he's indebted to Mordecai and wants to honor Mordecai. And this sets up the big joke that God is planning for Haman, right? The next day, Haman enters as God controls everything. And the king asks him, what should be done for the man, the king, the lights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Now this is very logical, right? Because you think to yourself, I'm Haman, I've already been invited to the private banquet with only the king and the queen. Twice, you know, not just once, twice. And now, who else would the king want to honor but me, right? So, for Haman, he's thinking that this is a great, great, great day. This is the day where my enemy is going to be impaled on this great pole, and I'm going to be honored by the king. But that's where the joke is, right? That's how humor works. Humor is where we as the audience know something, but the people in the story don't know what's happening. And so Haman, in his joy and his pride, says to the king, well, you know, if you're going to honor me, in his own mind, he should be wearing the robes of the king, riding the horse of the king, and wearing the crest of the king. But the joke is on Haman, right? Because at the end of the day, it is his enemy, Mordecai, who is the one that is wearing the robe of the king, riding the horse of the king, and wearing the crest of the king. And Haman is the one walking around saying to all the people, this is what is done for the man, the king, the lights, the honor. And just, can you imagine walking around the whole of, I don't know, Orchard Road or Haogang shouting this, right? This is what is done for the man, the king, the lights, the honor. And all this time, he's built this pole to impale Mordecai. Now, at the end of this chapter, his wife, right, does this 180 degree turn, right? Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him, you will surely come to ruin. 
Now, I'm quite old-fashioned. No? Sometimes I find the KJV got more power, right? The seeds of the Jews, if Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. And that is like the key verse to understand the whole book of Esther. Right? It's like this is like the key thematic verse, like, like the melodic line in a sense, to the key to understanding of packing the book of Esther. If you stand against God's people, you stand against God, you will not prevail, but you will surely fall before God. So you know in my house, I've got some pot plants, and I've got this ant problem in my house, right? There are always like lines of ants here and there. Anyway, so you know it's been raining a lot. So you know sometimes I see these ants and they're moving up and down, really irritating me, eating my dog's food, right? And... Uh, building this ant nest. Anyway, the rain comes and it wipes out these ants. I don't know where they went to, but I'm glad they're gone. But you see, these ants know, right, that when the rain comes, you can't prevail against the monsoon rain, right? They move off and do something else. Oh, Haman needs to learn from my ants, right? Because he needs to recognize that he cannot stand against God and God's people because He's against this superior force, even though he's the second most powerful person in the whole of the Persian Empire. Now, the danger still has not ended because Queen Esther still has her fateful second banquet with the king and Haman. She still needs to put forward her request and a petition to beg for the lives of the Jews and still ahead of her. Now, it's dangerous for, for Queen Esther because, first up, she needs to reveal that she's a Jew before the king, right? So she needs to do it without arousing the king's feeling of betrayal. You know, I mean, they didn't have marriage preparation class. But she should have at least told the, the king, hey, you know, I'm a Jew, right? You, you know? So that's dangerous for her. It's also dangerous for the queen, because she needs to condemn Haman without making the king look stupid because the king was the one who signed the edict that, that Haman brought to condemn the Jews. So she's still in grave, grave danger. You imagine her rehearsing her argument in front of the mirror like a, like a lawyer, right? rehearsing their closing arguments in front of the grand jury for a death row condemned convict. But she's not just arguing as a lawyer for one person in death row, but she's arguing for the fate of thousands of Jewish people, her people. So what did she say? Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish. Now, you know the movie, I'm Not Stupid, right? Well, Esther, she's not stupid, she's very clever. She appeals to her husband's protective instincts. Right? You know, it's like, it's like a wife, what wife goes to the husband and says, can you, can you protect me? And the husband will not want to protect the wife, right? I mean, generally all husbands want to protect their wives. Especially a man as powerful as King Xerxes, right? Like, that's why he says, who is this person? Where is he, the person that is threatening you, right? So his protective instinct is aroused and he feels this righteous anger. Who is it that threatens my wife, Queen Esther's life? 
But Queen Esther is also very clever in the way that she appeals for her people. She says, For if we had been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed or to be killed and to be annihilated, if we had only been sold merely as slaves, men or women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now this is the ESV translation, if you're looking at your Bibles, which I think explains what Esther's argument is. And what she's saying is, if we'd only been sold as slaves, O king, I wouldn't bother you. you know, I know your time is very important, and you know, it doesn't justify me bugging you. But this is so important, I must bug you. You know why? Because if we'd only been sold as slaves, then okay, I'll keep quiet. But we are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And this is a loss to the king. A loss to the kingdom. It weakens the kingdom. And so, King Xerxes is already boiling mad and he like reaches boiling point. So, someone's threatening to murder my wife, the queen, and someone is weakening my kingdom by causing loss to my king, kingdom. And therefore, you can imagine him sputtering away, right? Who is this? Who is, where is he? Who is there to do this? And then Esther says, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Now, Haman then seals his fate by getting too close to the queen. Right? Ancient harem protocol is that you can't get within seven feet of anybody in the king's harem, but even worse if it's the wife. So Haman gets too close and falls onto the couch where Queen Esther is. But I think the words of Habona are very, very instructive, right? Habona, one of the king, king's eunuchs attending to the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Now, you can just imagine Haman at this moment. I, and I think this is probably what he's thinking. He's probably thinking, thanks a lot, man, Habona. Thanks, man, for helping me out. Because these words like, like, are the worst for Haman, right? Because... In the king's mind, he's already favorably disposed to Mordecai. I mean, after all, he's paraded Mordecai around. This is the one, the man who delights the king. And he's thinking to himself, I already gave you permission to kill all the Jews in 11 months' time, but I didn't give you authority to put up this pole. Who gave you this authority to put up this pole? But more than that, who gave you authority to kill the person who helped me Stop my assassination. Who spoke up to help the king. Who in a sense I'm indebted to and failed to honor. So in the king's mind, this Haman is not really someone who may be for me, but actually in a conspiracy against me. Because the person who kills, the person who protects me from assassination, maybe he's the one who's trying to kill me in the first place. So, in the king's minds, there are all these doubts already. But remember, God is the one at work, right? God is the one at work. What is really happening here? Haman built this huge pole, taller than this ceiling, to send this message to people, right? Don't mess with me. God put Haman up on his own pole to tell people the same message, right? Don't mess with me. Haman wanted to mess with God's people and God is saying 
don't mess with my people because you then mess with me. Now for the original readers of Esther, this was a really vital lesson. Esther was written in the post-exilic age after the exile. And the people living in Persia were still aliens and strangers in Persia. If they were living in Judah, they were surrounded by enemies, weak and defenseless. They were listening to this message in a time of fear, a mood of fear. But the message is clear. To trust in God even when things seem out of control. Why? Because God will prevail in the end. If you go against God and God's people, you will fall. Now this is a message right from the very beginning of the Bible. Because if you remember, the beginning of the Jewish nation began with the person of Abram and the promises given to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Whoever blesses you, I will bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And so right at the very beginning of biblical history already, in the time of Abraham, God had a promise to look after his people. And now, in the time of Persia, 538 BC, after the return from exile, God is still faithful to his promises. God still continues to watch over his people. Now for us who live in the time of Jesus Christ, God is still the same and God has shown himself to be a God who looks after his people. And so in the time of Jesus Christ, we look at Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And on all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, Haman thought that he was a big deal, right, in salvation history. He was big enough to mess with God's people and to mess with God. But he learned that he wasn't. But who is Haman compared to death or life? Who is Haman compared to angels and demons? Who is Haman compared to anything else in all of creation? He's like nothing, right? He's like a little ant to God. Because before God, all of these things cannot prevail against him and his people. They will all surely fall. God is in control even when things seem to be out of control. Now I know for some of us in our lives, we may feel like we're our faith is under pressure, or we may feel that life is out of control. There are times where we feel, where is God? Right? What is God doing? Why is God not doing more for me? Maybe you receive bad news. Maybe the health scare. Maybe there's disappointment in your life. And you feel pressure. Right? Maybe you feel pressure in family, pressure from friends, pressure at school. And you ask yourself, where is God in all this? Right? But even when life is out of control, God is still in control. It's really been noted that it's interesting, right? In the whole book of Esther, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of any miracles. 
There's no mention of any God's like prophecy or word coming into the situation. Why? Why does Esther, or the author of Esther, not include God or miracles or you know the word of God in the book of Esther? I think it's because the author is trying to show that God is in control all the time in every circumstance without all these supernatural things. You know, sometimes we, you know, we, we ask ourselves, where is God? And we're kind of like expecting God to do this great miracle for us, right? This great supernatural act for us. But actually the book of Esther shows God is in control without all these supernatural things, without this obvious miracle. And so for us today, the lesson is, if you're personally struggling in some way, you feel under pressure, you feel like life is out of control, Esther is saying, be confident in God because God is still in control and He will prevail. He will prevail for you and whatever stands against us as Christians will surely fall before Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we want to ask that you may truly understand your great power to understand that you are God whom nothing can prevail against, that if anything stands against you, it will surely fall. We see that in the book of Esther, where Haman threatened your people, and how you acted and controlled events to bring about his fall. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves to see that in the time of Jesus, you have prevailed over all great powers, the power of death, uh, spiritual forces, uh, earthly dominions. Um, everything in all creation must bow the knee before you. So we pray that for ourselves, if we personally feel like life is out of control, we feel our faith under pressure, we ask, where are you, God? that the book of Esther will remind us that even when things are out of control, you are in control. That we merely need to keep trusting and having faith in you, safe in the knowledge that you will prevail, and that nothing can stand before you, they will all fall. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Pastor, for the sermon. And... Uh... There are two questions uh, for reflections uh, here on the screen. When do you ever feel that things are out of control? And what has today's passage taught you about trusting God in those times? Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.